Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Lucy Kinski, author of European Representation in EU National Parliaments, published this year by Palgrave Macmillan, and shortlisted for the UAC's Best Book in European Studies Prize for 2021. The winner will be announced in the first week of September. It's been 44 years since the young European Federalists first coined the term democratic deficit, two years before the first direct elections to the European Parliament, 10 years before the single European Act, and more than 20 before the advent of the euro. Over those years, as the single market and the new currency shifted powers from the nation to the union, the conviction that the EU suffers such a deficit has taken root among Europhiles and Eurosceptics alike. While powers have ceded, they say, democratic accountability has not. But is this entirely true? And if it is, should the deficit be be filled by the European Parliament? In her new book, Dr. Kinski concludes that not only do national parliaments have a stronger claim to democratic legitimacy than the overarching supranational tier, but also that many national MPs are already acting as representatives for the wider union. Lucy Kinski is a researcher and lecturer at the Salzburg Centre for European Union Studies. She studied at the Hertie School in Berlin, the Utrecht School of Economics, the Graduate Institute in Geneva, and obtained a doctorate at the University of Vienna. Before Salzburg, she was a senior researcher at the University of Dusseldorf. Lucy, thanks a lot for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tim. Well, uh, in the introduction, I gave a one-sentence summary of the book's theme. Um, could you set out? Could you start by setting out a, a fuller summary of your argument and also of your method? Um, yeah, sure. Maybe I'll start by saying a bit more about how the book came about as well. So my, my broader academic interest revolves around representation and responsiveness in the European Union as a kind of multi-level system. So the interplay, let's say, between national institutions and actors and the European ones. And this book kind of really wants to make the reader think outside of our usual fault lines that we oftentimes tend to have in European studies on what national 
national interests are, what European interests are, and how they kind of relate to each other. And at the time, let's say the first idea for the project came about, I was actually working as a policy advisor in the European division at the German Federal Chancellery in Berlin. Um, this was actually at the height of the Eurozone crisis, so the sovereign debt crisis. And I realized somehow that many public discussions and also discussions I had with colleagues there were kind of revolving around, let's say, two forces pulling into two different directions. There was very much awareness of, of the economic interdependence at the time, you know, things happening in one member state very rapidly and um, had far-reaching consequences, let's say, on the fates and fortunes of citizens living in other EU countries. But at the same time, there was also a lot of politicization going on, a lot of reservations um, towards many of these measures taken. So this was basically the background where I started with the question, what do these things do, let's say, not only to the way that national politicians do politics, but maybe at a deeper level, what does this do to their representation in the in the European context? And the main question or argument, I guess you could say, of the book then is, who do, and I look at members of national parliaments, who do they represent when they make such decisions in a European Union context? Do they really only speak for their national citizens or do they also take into account citizens that live in other member states or maybe even an overarching European citizenry? Um, and the book then tries to make both theoretically and you could say probably also a bit normatively the case why this may be an interesting new way of thinking about representation that goes a bit beyond our usual standard notion that we have of representation when we think about national parliaments in an EU context, namely pretty much only focusing on, on national concerns and what their national citizens want. Um, and then what this book also does, I guess this is the second part of the argument, is really looking at this empirically by um, combining different data sources. I wanted to combine, you know, more quantitative data on the one hand, but also with more qualitative data to kind of really understand these patterns of representation that we have. And I analyze parliamentary debates on key decision cases in European integration, because I wanted to start with, okay, what do these national parliamentarians say publicly? Who do they represent when they make decisions on the Greek bailout or on other EU integration questions? And then I thought, okay, maybe that's one side of things, but I want to get at this a bit deeper. I want to really understand um, not only what they say publicly, maybe, but also at a kind of deeper level, what, what do they think? And um, that's why I, I also conducted um, 66 interviews with members of parliaments um, in Austria, Germany, Ireland, um, and the UK, who at the time um, I did this was still a member of, of the European Union. Mm. But before you started the work, did you have any reason um, to believe that there would be these different patterns of representation or did did the empirical work reveal this to you? Um, I guess to be completely honest, I, I had the idea that or I had the hunch that there was something to this idea of of broader representative roles that I that I wanted to look at, not only kind of 
thinking about national parliaments and members of national parliament as kind of being elected by national citizens and then only representing um, their concerns. So I also from my work in in, in the chancellery and um, with the German Bundestag specifically, I, I somehow had the idea that um, there may be something to this, some, some broader understanding of representation that also the actors would share. But um, at the very beginning of the project, when I talked to academic colleagues about this, they immediately thought when I told them what I was going to do, they immediately thought I was going to look at the European Parliament. Mm. And it didn't even seem to occur to them that this was something that could happen in, um, in national parliaments to start with. So in a sense, I guess it goes to show how ingrained even in in European scholars, this idea is that national parliaments are kind of like the, you know, the gatekeepers of European integrations, kind of like the guardians of, let's say, national interests only. And I was a bit mm. worried at the beginning whether, you know, if, if scholars didn't even uh, think this was, was going to happen, then the politicians that I was interested in uh, may also not um, not do that. But I was I was actually quite surprised then to to find the amount of representative claims to other EU citizens um, in the plenary debates and then later also in the interviews that I I did find. I I think I was most surprised, you could say, by that this was actually something that was happening systematically. It did not seem to be neither in the debates that I looked at and also not in the interviews some kind of I don't know, random noise that um, they would just, you know, occasionally refer to the interests of Greek citizens, for example. But this was really something that was happening um, quite a bit. And it it somehow seemed to be, again, not an either or decision in a sense. Should it be national citizens that are represented or should there be some kind of European representation? But the members of parliament really seemed to somehow mix and match the different claims to representation. So mm. on the one hand, the national electoral connection was was not lost or let's say, I don't know, superimposed by a European one, but we could clearly see that they were trying to, to reconcile the different interests in a kind of not a zero-sum game logic. They were not thinking along the lines, okay, for some to win, others must lose. But they were really trying to um, to consider these um, these different interests and not only exclusively, let's say, focus on the on the national interest. Mm. Well, you actually do find it with your research that German MPs were, as you, you uh, quote, very inclined to Europeanize their representation, uh, while the British were reluctant to. So we, we can come back to the British later. But do, do you think... Uh, well, first of all, how, how do you explain that particularity of German MPs? And second, do, do you think perhaps you wouldn't have had the inspiration for the book had you not been working in Berlin at the time? <laughs> um, probably, that's probably true. Starting with with the second part of the question, you're probably right. Um, the Germans, the German MPs that I talked to and also the debates that I looked at were quite puzzling to me, I have to say, because... I would say they had the most kind of multi-layered but also complex understanding of representation in EU affairs, it seemed. So they were, like you said, by far the most consistently Europeanized, both in what they said whom they represent in the plenary debates, but also when I talked to them um, in the interviews. And I 
my impression was, especially from the interviews, that this was something that really had something to do with their notion of what the national interest is. Many talked to me also very personally about, you know, especially after the World War, that the notion of a German national interest was somehow inseparably tied to European integration. And most of them kind of argued along the lines, German national interest um, is something like if Europe is doing well, well then Germany um, is also doing well. And Europe is basically in the German national interest. Mm. Um, and of course, you could say that's also probably quite a strategic argument to make, knowing, you know, German profit, Germany profits very well from the single market with uh, the export-led growth strategy and um, these things. But I, I had a feeling from the interviews that there was, there was a bit more to it. I, um, first of all, I thought this was something that they had actually really thought about this European dimension of representation. It was not something that I, that I prompted them with. I, I basically just asked them, who do you represent in EU affairs? And they talked about their national interests, but they almost immediately went to the broader European interests or also taking the interests of other citizens um, into consideration. And I also had one, one final question that I asked everyone um, that was kind of a a dreamer's question, you could say, ask them if, if you could have one wish completely free of any change of uh, chains of, of what is politically feasible, um, you know, a purely hypothetical scenario. And I asked them, what would you want um, to change institutionally in the European Union? Um, I wanted to get a bit at their their visions for Europe and the German MPs, particularly not um, not only but especially, um, they really advocated for a very active role of national parliaments, um, but not only with regard to to national interests, but but really with a broader European um, outlook. Some of them even went as far as suggesting um, to maybe abolish national parliaments in the in the long run. <laughs> Um, but what you could actually see, it was not in their heads, at least it seemed, not the usual dichotomy of, you know, it's either the United States of Europe um, or, you know, we have to rescale things back to the nation state. But they really um, had very interesting ideas of how how to actually reconcile national concerns with, with wider European ones. Um, and yeah. I think this this has a lot to do also with with his historical experiences and with a particularly German, I guess you could say, um, notion of of what the national interest is. Yeah, uh, and I mean this focus on national parliaments and your relegation of the European Parliament, and you actually refer to it as quote a second order locus of political identification and collective will formation. I mean that as you as you touched on earlier, that's not a fashionable position in. In the academic world, and and certainly not if you're in the European Parliament. <laughs> How did this go down? Was there was there pushback against this this approach? <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably true. Not not a very fashionable uh, stance to to take. Um, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there are many great EU scholars that do focus on the European Parliament um, when it comes to representation, when it comes to questions of responsiveness, and I think it is a very worthwhile endeavor to to do that. I think we can um, we can learn a lot about the question. Okay, who do members? of the European Parliament represent? Are they driven, let's say, by their national principles? Or do they, you know, 
further some kind of wider European interest in a sense, kind of do they Europeanize? Is there some kind of socialization into a more European thinking, let's say? And I think we find interesting um, tendencies here. I deliberately kind of chose to focus on national parliaments and look at some kind of European representation among members of national parliaments, precisely because maybe at first this really seems, seems like the unlikely place to, to look for that. Mm. Because really what the, what the standard account of representation and the role of national parliaments is, is national representatives get elected by national citizens and then they represent their concerns also in European Union um, affairs. And I really wanted to, or I really had the feeling that this was a kind of too narrow understanding of, of the representative role of, of national parliaments. And I, I also think there are good reasons to assume that national parliaments can actually take this, this broader role when, when making decisions on transnational problems that do cut across uh, national borders. I think a lot of times we tend to look at the institutions and their formal roles, and then um, there, there are usually these, these two options. It's some form of supranationalization or it's um, some more intergovernmental cooperation. Um, and there, there seems to be nothing in between. And my idea of looking at national parliaments was in a sense to open up a third way in which national parliaments can have a more, you know, not always kind of being the veto players in European integration, but have it have a more open European representative role, um, you could say. Mm-hmm. And maybe as a final point, um, I I don't see it, and I think we should not see it um, again as an either or decision, you know, it's either about strengthening the European Parliament or strengthening the the national parliaments. Um, And I think my book shows this empirically as well, because the actors kind of show it, um, that it really can be both. So I whenever I talk to colleagues and they were kind of, you know, questioning this, I, I always try to to make the case that this should and cannot be an either-or decision, either strengthening, let's say, the European Parliament um, or focusing on national parliaments in that way. I mean, I, I've got to say, I, I have a natural sympathy for the idea, given the what, what I think is a structural problem with the European Parliament, that as long as you have the European Union built around a council of ministers and, and a treaty-based organisation between governments – you're always going to have European Parliament elections falling between national elections, except in Belgium. And that means they're always going to be a, um, a, a, a venue for protest votes. Extreme parties do very well. And then the European Parliament acts as a sort of incubator for uh, extremism that's then re-imported back into to nation states. And we've seen this many, many times. It, I, do, you, do, you, do you have... Uh, uh, I guess, do you, do you share that approach or is, is, you, is your approach much more kind of objective than perhaps mine is? <laughs> no, I, I think I agree. I mean, this is this is one of the, the, the problems, let's say in quotation mark, that we that we have. You you put your finger right on it, this idea of um, you know, kind of kind of spill back also to the to the national arena where we we see this um right wing um, populist tendencies and I I wouldn't go as far as saying my approach is a kind of antidote to this or a kind of, you know, silver bullet solving all the 
problems that we have with, you know, the crises of representation um, at the EU level and also at the national level. But I think for one, opening scholars' eyes to to this that is already happening, in a sense, um, it doesn't really need, let's say, cumbersome institutional um, changes or treaty changes to to kind of tackle the democratic deficit in in that sense. But it's already something that, to quite a surprising degree, is is actually happening in the day to day politics um, in the national parliaments. And just um, for scholars and also others to kind of become aware of this and maybe factor this in rather than than going to the go-to solutions that we usually do i think um this can this can be a good a good complement and i'm sure we're probably going to talk a bit also about the the different parties how they do this this european yeah. representation in the national parliaments yeah we certainly we, we certainly are but f- first i'd like to um and it, this is relevant to that the, the second chapter of your book the th- sort of theoretical foundations for the book you make this crucial differentiation between legislators roles and their role orientations C- can you explain this concept and its importance to to your argument mm, i think this goes back to to pretty early research on on representative roles and parliamentary roles actually coming from the U.S. context from the fifties and the sixties. So Walker and others were the first to kind of coin these terms, you could say, because they felt the need. They they also analyzed legislators in the U.S. Congress, and they kind of felt the need to make the distinction between, on the one hand the so-called representative roles, kind of what legislators do, the kind of roles they play, you could say. So this could, in fact, be purely strategic. And a lot of people, when they talk about um, these roles, they kind of you know, come up with a theater metaphor. It's about playing these representative roles, also playing them publicly. And um, yeah, they may be purely strategic. And then on the other hand, and this goes a bit deeper, is the concept of role orientations. And that's kind of going at the, let's say, deeper convictions or the the underlying ideas of these MPs. Who do they think they are as a representative? And ultimately, whose interests do they feel they probably should represent? Um, And for my book, I found this this very basic distinction quite helpful because it, in a sense, allowed me to to get at what they say and what they think and combine this with with the different methods that um, that I used. And I... When I think about it, I think both are equally important. Um, I guess one one problem when when you analyze public speech behavior is this could all be cheap talk. Um, This could in Mm -hmm. the end probably all be, you know, national interests kind of sugarcoated um, with some Europeanness in a sense we also care about, let's say, the Greek citizens during the Eurozone crisis. Um, But even if, I guess, this was only purely strategic, um, I think the pure fact of publicly bringing in the grievances of these foreign citizens, let's say, into the domestic debate and also into the domestic will formation process on EU affairs, um, does something to the way representation is done. So a plenary debate, let's say, that you know focuses on the German interests in, I don't know, the, the common agricultural policy would look very different from one that includes 
the interests of the Irish turf cutters, British fishers, or let's say Austrian farmers. Mm. Um, so I think this goes to say that even if worst case scenario, they didn't believe a word they were saying, it still, you know, does something pu publicly to, um, to the way representation is done in, in national parliaments in EU affairs. And luckily, I was, I was quite happy about that. In the interviews, I do find, you know, some traces that this is something that, that actually goes a bit, um, a bit deeper and is not just purely strategic. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. <laughs> well, and this is relevant to this. I mean, your most striking finding, and it seemed to surprise you, is is that MPs from the extreme left tend to be the most Europeanized in in, in terms of representation. But I was going to ask, isn't this simply, do you think, because they hold to an ideology that is necessarily internationalist in character, um, and and their you know their, their their representation of these non citizens is almost an accident of that ideology. Um, yeah, I thought I actually thought a lot about this this point as well. I it's it's this notion that I that I called Eurosceptic Europeanization in a in a sense that the left leaning MPs also from the mainstream left, but particularly like you say from the from the far left, actually show these Europeanized representation patterns most consistently and also most strongly. So on on the one hand. Yes, I would say it does have something to do with their ideological leaning, um, because like you said, they have this broader internationalist outlook. Um, and we see that on the, the reverse, let's say, on the right side of the political spectrum, which is also, I guess, quite intuitive, um, because far right parties would nationally, uh, naturally have this national outlook. So... I would say the general left-right pattern is maybe not so surprising after all. Um, the much more fascinating or also surprising part for me was, was actually the Eurosceptic part, um, mm. that it's not the mainstream left or the pro-EU mainstream parties, um, also from the center-right, that are the strongest drivers of this European representation. Um, and I think this, this maybe again be some kind of automatic thinking that we have that pro-European parties should naturally also be the ones that have particularly European patterns of, of representation. Um, and in fact, when I started out the project, this was one of my very first expectations that in the end, um, I could not at all confirm. So you could say that my, my most interesting finding in a sense is, um, is a kind of non-finding because what we see, and then I, I ended up finding this this quite fascinating, is that Eurosceptic parties from the left, like the left party in, in Germany, and there were some, some Irish members of parliament, independent members of parliament from the left, um, that really had these, these Europeanized patterns of, of representation, 
while, let's say, conservative Austrian or German parliamentarians from pro-EU parties, they spoke more in the name of national citizens. So I guess simply put, you could say, maybe taking the risk, the risk of, you know, maybe a bit oversimplifying now, but pro-EU center-right parties speak about the good of the European Union for national citizens, while Eurosceptic far-left ones kind of criticized the EU um, in the name of, um, of European citizens. And then, of mm. course, there's a lot of questions. What kind of representation is this if it's, you know, a lot of opposition to, um, to European integration pro- projects and whether this is some desirable form of representation or not? Do you, do you think perhaps your if you were to update your research um, to I don't know say the last the last couple of years where this illiberal wave has come through from Hungary and Poland and there's been this quite um, strong liberal pushback from what would be traditionally considered the you know the liberal central the liberal center right um, and I don't include the EPP here I'm, I'm thinking of. <laughs> You know the, the the liberal parties. Do you think perhaps they that would also show a, an increased um, uh, representation of non citizens uh, th- that is not showing up in your research, which is inevitably a little bit older. Um, yeah, I think that would be a very um, interesting thing to actually update this and look at newer debates and maybe um, do newer interviews because a lot of things um, changed quite quite rapidly. And I I could think that I could actually find something like this in a way that um, because of, in a kind of reaction also to to illiberal trends and, you know, um, more and more rise of, of populist far-right parties that um, the, let's say I call them mainstream um, pro-European parties, the center-left and the center-right parties would would take up this, um, this European notion of representation because I... It's not in my data. It's not the case that they don't do it at all. But um, they were less driving this less than I had originally expected. And maybe this would be really, really interesting to see. And I, I think we could find something like this um, that they now kind of pick this up in terms of the the competition or, or the threat to um, to liberal democracy becoming um, becoming stronger mm-hmm. over over the past years. So that would be um, indeed a very very new future research project to do. do you, I mean, in, in this respect, and also what you've described, do you think there is a developing European demos? I mean, this is one of the what is one of the criticisms made in in the UK uh, about the European Union that there was no there was no real demos. Do you think there is one? And if there isn't, do you think it matters? Um, yeah, the big the big demos question. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it seems kind of be looming behind my entire project although I don't really address it so much up front in the in the mm. book um, from from the data that I have collected and also the interviews that I've conducted what I what I found very striking and there was also a, quite a big difference between how British uh, members of Parliament um, responded as compared to um, to the others um, was that in the back of their minds, it was not so much the question, even when we were talking about the Eurozone uh, crisis and the bailout mechanisms, it was not so much questions about redistribution and the kind of, you know, economic questions of who gets what, but 
what they were really concerned about when they thought about representation was rather the question of who belongs to us, who mm. is, is part of the political community and in a European Union context, where are the boundaries of this political community if we have things like the Eurozone crisis and other crises um, that follows, obviously, maybe um, have a similar logic um, where, you know, the problems don't stop at, at the national borders. So I I had the feeling that it was at least something, this, this whole idea of is there a European demos, is there a common um, European identity or, let's say, some form of, of shared political community, I felt... This was something they had thought about. This was something they had clear stances about. Some people clearly said, um, this is something that is in the making and it should be. And others, um, especially from the populist far-right parties, they clearly you know, had a very different understanding of what the national interest is, um, what sovereignty is, and said um, there cannot be a European demos and there should not be one. Mm. So I think just the fact that, you know, these politicians that are usually in the in the day-to-day kind of policy politics game of things, that they took the time to to consider these these bigger questions kind of goes to show that there is, you know, something happening around the question, you know, not not only the the, the economic question of, of who gets what, but ultimately also the question of um, who belongs to um, to our shared community mm-hmm. and who doesn't. Well, at, at the end of the book, you you come to the big normative question, um, can Europeanised parliaments be an antidote to the EU's democratic deficit? And you, you, the answer you give is probably yes. But then you, you, you then ask two more questions. Should they be? And are they a stepping stone to transnational democracy? Now, um, I, know, I know the book wasn't really the venue for, uh, you know, coming up with solutions to this. It was more an analysis. But could, I, I was really intrigued as to what your potential... Uh, solutions would be? What is the answer to probably yes? <laughs> yeah, uh, there were a lot of uh, maybes and probablys mm. in the in the final chapter. Um, I think a couple of, of answers and maybe also a suggestion that would come to, to my mind. I think for one, what, what is really important that, you know, national parliaments will always be and should probably always be, um, also venues of of national representation. So this whole idea of them also considering European citizens, um, citizens living in other member states, um, I wouldn't see it as kind of doing away with the national electoral connection, because I think a lot of, you know, political identification and also domestic war formation is firmly anchored at the national level. And that's, um, that's fine. I think by by opening up our view on national parliaments, we kind of see, and this has been quite overlooked, how they can can supplement, let's say, with these European patterns of representation towards a kind of transnational democracy in the day to day of politics, rather than you know having having these these big institutional reforms. Um, and and one thing that that probably I is kind of in the back of all of this is the question of whether citizens is this is this a kind of representation that citizens actually um, want, and I think that's a that's a crucial argument in a sense that if 
the national citizens also want their national representatives to have, um, you know, these European citizens represented, then that's that's a different, maybe more durable variant of, of this kind of representation as if it was only driven um, by these um, these national politicians um, them, themselves. And another another question that is then kind of connected to that is um, the question of accountability to these foreign citizens. I mean, in a way, it's nice if German citizens want their members of parliament to represent the Greeks, but I think the more difficult question is actually do the Greeks want the German um, parliamentarians to represent them as, um, as well? And um, this is not entirely unproblematic in a sense because the kind of representation we see here may be you know, quite parochial or maybe even um, some kind of bad representation. So I think then ultimately the question arises, okay, maybe there has to be some kind of institutional underpinning, some kind of institutional innovation we can we can do to, you know, have these transnational connections in a more, uh, more formalized way. And um, a lot of people like um, Joachim Blatter have worked on this, the idea um, of extension of, um, of the voting rights. Um, in a sense, me, you know, being a German living in Austria, uh, I can obviously vote locally in Austria and, and the EP, of course, but uh, the national elections um, I can I cannot take part in. So one, one idea would be to kind of really reconsider these these old notions of, of citizenship and um, territoriality maybe um, to to think about these these voting rights mm-hmm. um, another idea that I probably didn't I didn't touch upon in the book would be less less hard to change but maybe some some combination of representative approaches to democracy with more, let's say, deliberative or participatory approaches. So I'm thinking along the lines of maybe having some some transnational digital platforms where citizens from one member state can interact with politicians from from other member states. I mean, there there have always been these ideas um, floating around. Um, There, again, a problem that arises would be, you know, how elitist are these platforms? Are they just for the young urban professionals who are, you know, tend not to be um, underrepresented in, in European politics? So I think mm. there are a lot of ideas floating out there. Um, yeah, now it seems my answer was maybe again, but... <laughs> No, there, there were some good ideas there. One, one that another that occurred to me, and you, you, you touch on it in the first chapter about the development of um, COSAC, the 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 committee of committees, right, the, of the national European affairs committees. Do you, I mean, given how relatively quickly the European Union was able to set up representative bodies like the um, ECSC or the Committee of the Regions, do you, I mean. Do you think it would make sense to to formally do something with COSAC to make it something that has uh, more de- more say in the development of legislation and the uh, and the you know keep it keeping a an oversight uh, of the Council of Ministers? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's. 
I think purely from a purely, let's say, theoretical perspective, there would be some some arguments for that in a sense. I mean, and, and this has has been, you know, discussed also in, in, in academic debates, but also in more public policy circles. I think this idea of um, could Kozak not only in, in quotation marks be kind of a forum for, for information exchange, but really, um, you know, have a have a more kind of stronger legislative function in terms of um, policy making and maybe also um, like you said um, co- the control function scrutinizing um, as, a, as a common body let's say what what happens in um, um, in the different EU institutions and especially the Council of Ministers and I think um, my colleague Ian Cooper has called this the kind of virtual third chamber in a sense can national parliaments assume this role and become this this virtual third chamber um, kind of at the European level. Um, just from from talking to the members of Parliament, I'm I'm skeptical that this is this is what they what they would advocate for. I, I also asked them which what functions or which tasks they thought their national parliaments should um, fulfill. And they, whenever we talked about, you know, COSAC having a more formal role, they, and there were not many differences between the countries either. They basically said, yeah, this, this would be nice to have, but we don't think it's, it's political, politically feasible for one. And maybe that's not the best venue um, to do this kind of control and oversight. Um, this should rather stay um, with the national parliaments as, as individual parliaments kind of controlling their national um, governments. So they had a very strong focus on, um, on their own scrutiny role and their own um, role in EU affairs and didn't really... Um, think so much about these these possibilities to connect this. But then again, um, I only looked at these four um, four countries, and this was also a while ago. I think since then, this this whole discussion of what to do with interparliamentary cooperation, also um, you know, in relation to matters of um, economic governance and the monetary union has has really picked up in recent years. So probably, mm. um, if I talk to them again today, I would um, would probably get uh, get a different answer. Right. Okay. Well, to to finish the interview, um, since this is a podcast about books, I've asked you to come up with two books to recommend. What what have you chosen? Um, yeah, so for the book that's kind of broadly from my field, let's say, I've chosen a book by um, Alvaro Olear that was published in 2021, also by Palgrave. Um, it's called Framing TTIP in uh, the European Public Spheres Towards an Empowering the Census um, for EU Integration. Um, and what he does very well and what I very much like about this book, he looks at the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, um, TTIP, and he kind of disentangles, let's say, the different dynamics of politicization um, as kind of a part of, you know, almost normalizing European Union politics and maybe actually enhancing democratic legitimacy in the European Union. So he looks at different um, media debates and the different public spheres that are usually, you know, very nationally segmented. Um, and he kind of traces the different Europeanization patterns in these um, in these public spheres. And I think that speaks very well to to my side that looks at, at let's say, the parliament side of this, um, because he kind of also concludes that you know, there's not only a bad kind of um, of politicization, and the the public dissensus on European integration 
does not always have to be constraining, but it can actually be quite empowering, at least um, with regard to uh, TTIP that he looks at. Um, and for the for the other book, I, I chose um, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, uh, Resisting the Attention Economy. It's a very tough, but I, I think very uh, rewarding read. So maybe it's not your, your usual summer beach read. Um, and the title suggests a bit, you know, that at first I thought when I picked it up, this is kind of like a, a self-care book or kind of like a self-help book. But it's really not so much about, you know, spending your free time in a way to, I don't know, to self-optimize or kind of be productive afterwards. But she really makes an interesting case to genuinely do nothing. And she draws on insights from philosophy, arts, um, also a lot on, on political thought and political philosophy. And I, I found that very refreshing. Right. Well, excellent choices. Uh, today, I've been talking to Lucy Kinski about European representation in EU national parliaments, published this year by Palgrave Macmillan and shortlisted for the UAC's Best Book Prize. Lucy, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks. It was a pleasure.